Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. It's really good to sit with you this weekend for this um, Buddha's Enlightenment session. And Friday was Bodhi Day. It is the day that marks the Buddha's enlightenment at the, at the foot of the Pipal or Bodhi, Bodhi tree. Bodhi means enlightenment. And I didn't know that the term Rohatsu means the eighth day of the twelfth month. You know, I, I thought that it really refers to the intensity of this particular session that I believe all Zen groups uh, do leading up to Buddha's enlightenment as a celebration and the embodiment, as I've been saying, of the Buddha's awakening. And um, one of you let me know uh, about the meaning of Rohatsu. And so I guess technically that means that we could. We could call our little Sashin Rohatsu Sashin. And so as we close our own celebration, I wanted to bring into our virtual Zendo that image that I wrote about recently of Siddhartha standing before his father and requesting permission to join the shramanas, the wandering ascetics, um, who were, as far as was understood, dedicated to the pursuit of enlightenment. And the Buddha, after seeing the three signs of old age, sickness, and death, and then the fourth sign, of seeing a wandering mendicant decides to leave home and join them. And it's a different story that the one told in the sutras. The, the version that I wrote about is Hermann Hesse's version in his book Siddhartha. And I've loved it. I've always loved it since I read it because, you know, the Buddha doesn't slink away in the middle of the night. He doesn't leave behind his wife and his newly born son, whom he named Rahula, Fetter. We don't actually know if he named him that or if that was 
in the sutras, added in the sutras later, but it doesn't make for a very kind uh, picture in that moment of Siddhartha. I mean, there, there is that, the aspiration, of course, to free himself, but then there's the leaving behind. And so in this version, he's standing proud, determined, clear, you know, filled with his own aspiration. But because of the relationship that he has with his father, because of filial relationships, because they're a, a, a kind of royalty, he doesn't want to just ignore his father's wishes. And although it is fiction that Hesse wrote, to me it's very interesting that he thought it important to have the Buddha begin his journey in this way, not hiding, but really out in the open. And in this version, you know, granted, there is no wife, no child. But if we really appreciate the reimagining, you know, we can think of it as a, as a kind of second chance. You know, how would you do it over <laughs> if you could? The next, the next iteration should be a woman writing the version in which the Buddha asks Yashodara permission to go. A version in which what happens next happens very differently. But in this story, Siddhartha, the prince of the Shakyas, he approaches his father. He's sitting on a reed mat. And he approaches him quietly, and then he stands behind him and waits to be acknowledged. And that made me think of this image of Dharma encounter the way that we would do it as a mountain monastery. The teacher sits at the front of the room, Shosanshi, the, the, the teacher of Shosan, Dharma Encounter, and the attendant stands behind them on the, I don't remember which side, one, one of the sides. <laughs> the attendant is standing behind, holding first a small kyosaku, Right, the waking stick, the flat wooden staff that we use during zazen hits an acupressure point in the shoulder to relieve tiredness or, or um, pain. And the teacher introduces the theme of the Dharma encounter and then invites students to come up. And then the attendant comes forward again and they exchange sticks. So, you know, I would have my teaching stick, like this one, was given to me by my teacher. I would give that to the attendant. The attendant would hand me the kyosaku, and then the attendant would stand holding my stick, and I would have the kyosaku during the encounter, I guess, to whack anybody in case they need it. <laughs> um, and I've done the job. Well, I've done both jobs now, but I've done the job of the attendant standing for over an hour, unmoving. And let me tell you, it is not an easy job. 
And some attendants would just would not move at all. You know, not a muscle, not a hair, not a twitch, not a blink, you know, nothing. And others would look at each student as they were coming up and they would smile, they would crack up, you know, they were completely involved in the exchange. But either way, an hour is a long time to be standing in, in one place in a room full of people that you know are watching to see what you're going to do. So it's not very comfortable at all. But visually, it is very effective. It's very dramatic. And, and that's part of the point. Because it's a... Although there is an element of drama, there's an element of theater, there is also an element of, of creating the, the right environment for teacher and student to meet in the Dharma. We will do that. We will do that together, a version of it together, when we meet for our session. Because there is something that happens. It's not just plop down on your seat and now have somebody, you know, give a talk. And now and then I mention, I know that people listen to talks as they're driving or as they're cooking dinner, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that, and I don't even intend to discourage you from doing that. And there is something that happens when you are fully there, especially face to face, a few feet away. There is something that happens. And so when we do something like this, we have to work harder to meet the Dharma. To, to step forward into the Dharma. I have to work harder to penetrate this, this virtual barrier. And I know that. But I hope you're meeting my work. And so the Buddha approaches his father. Now he faces him. No. First, you know, he's standing behind, and King Sudodana just says, Is that you? Is that you, Siddhartha? Just say. Just say what you have to say. And then Siddhartha comes around, and he says, With your permission, Father, I came to tell you that I want to leave the palace tomorrow. I want to join the Shramanas. And then he says, Please, don't oppose this. He knows. He knows how his father feels. And in fact, the king is livid. But it's unseemly for a king to show anger. And so he's quiet for a very long time. And then finally he says, I don't want to hear this request from you again. And that's it. That's all he says. I don't want to hear this from you. This has happened before, and maybe Hesa read this. Mahaprajapati, the Buddha's aunt, and then his stepmother when his mother dies, comes before his son and asks to become ordained and to study with him. And the Buddha says, no, women cannot join the Sangha. And she asks again, and he says, no. And she asks a third time, 
and he still says no. But he must have gotten his determination, at least partly, through example. Because Mahaprajapati decides that she's not going to take no for an answer. And so she goes home, she gathers 500 women, and they shave each other's heads. And they put on saffron robes. And then they walk the 150 miles from Kapilavastu to Vaisali, where the Buddha has gone to spend Ango, the rains retreat. And this gold sea, I mean, imagine this, this gold sea just sweeps into Vaisali. They're walking, they've been walking barefoot, their feet are blistered, they're bleeding. And they stand outside the hall with a pointed roof in the great wood. And they wait to be received by the Buddha. And as they're standing, silent and determined, Ananda sees them. He sees this vast female body that will not be budged, that won't be turned away. And he talks to Mahaprajapati and she explains why they're there. And so he goes inside and he says to the Buddha, my Lord, Prajapati is standing outside with swollen feet, covered in dust and crying because you won't allow her and the women to renounce their homes and enter into homelessness. It would be good Lord, if women had permission to do this. And the Buddha says, enough, Ananda, enough. Do not ask me any such thing. This is how karma repeats itself. Although the other story is fiction, this is in fact how karma repeats itself. But like the Buddha will do in his own story, and like Mahaprajapati, Ananda doesn't get discouraged. And he says, well, my Lord, but if women were allowed to leave home and join the Sangha, couldn't they enter Nirvana? And the Buddha caught says, well, yes, yes, they could. Anyone can enter Nirvana. And Ananda says, well, this is your aunt. This is your foster mother. This is your nurse. She raised you. She fed you milk from her own breast. And she wants to enter the Sangha. As do your wife and many other women who've known you since you were a baby. It would be good, Lord, if women were allowed to enter into homelessness. And so the Buddha agrees. He tacks on a bunch more rules, but he agrees. Maybe recognizing that they won't be deterred. Just as he won't budge when his father says, don't ask me again. He doesn't say a single thing. He just stands there. 
And after a while, the king stands up, and then they face each other, father and son, and he says, what are you waiting for? You know. How do you argue with a mountain? The king leaves the room and he goes to bed, but he can't sleep. And after tossing and turning for an hour, he gets up and he goes out to the garden where he stands pacing, and he looks through the window and there is Siddhartha, standing as if he's always stood there, as if he'll always stand there, until time falls back into itself and the king gives a different answer. He may not even be thinking this, Siddhartha. He may just be filled with his faith, with his certainty that he has to do this. You know, even if his father, even if the whole kingdom opposes it. To me, this is the strength, the strength of this story. It's his conviction. Right? The faith that he had in something that he could only sense. He couldn't have known. He couldn't have known that he would go off with his friends, the ascetics, and that he would study everything they had to teach him, and that it wouldn't be enough. That at the end of that training, he'd realize this isn't it. Could he have foreseen what he would do next and what would be the result of it? That this little group scattered all over America would be here talking about him? And all he could do was take a step based on what he'd felt before in meditation because he had experienced that and see if that path would lead him where he wanted to go. Think of your own life. Think of the fact that you're here right now in this moment. Think of the pool you feel or have felt towards Zazen. A pool that doesn't always make sense. Certainly not to those who don't feel it. Think of the mystery, the miracle it is that you sit down quietly each day, seemingly doing nothing, and when you get up, your life is better. You're better, brighter, sharper, right? As if somebody had turned up the focus. Think of why you keep coming back to your seat even when it hurts, or when you feel stuck, when you feel maybe this isn't working, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Everybody else looks like a Buddha. I'm a mess. I've had people say that to me. I'm like, how do you know what's going on inside them? Well, I don't, but they look like they're sitting there like a Buddha. You don't know. You don't know about yourself. And so think of the trust that you have to have, the faith that you have to have to keep going, despite everything. I mean, when people ask you, what did you do for the weekend? 
Oh, I just sat quietly with a bunch of people. Without moving. Ringing a bell now and then. And everything changes. How is that? How is that? I felt it the first time I sat down. I crossed my legs and I thought, where have I been my whole life? I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was something. And I knew I would do it for the rest of my life without any idea of where that would lead. I mean, no possible way <laughs> to see where that would lead. And I wouldn't have believed it. But this, I knew. I knew I would do. And so maybe he's not thinking of anything where he's standing, just that very act of standing. And upset, the king goes back to bed, he still can't sleep, and every hour he's doing this, and he peeks in the window, and there's his son, not moving, it's like a sheer cliff. And at a certain point, you know, his knees start to shake because they have to. But his face is completely calm. And when the first rays of light enter the room, King Sudodana follows them. And he stands in front of the prince, his son. And again, he says, Siddhartha, what are you waiting for? Siddhartha just says, you know. Will you always stand there? Will you always wait until it becomes morning, noon, and evening? I will stand and wait. You'll become tired, Siddhartha. I'll become tired. You'll fall asleep. I won't fall asleep. You'll die, Siddhartha. I will die. And this is when the king wakes up. This is when the king gets it. He realizes what's actually happened. He's already lost his son, the prince. He's already lost the son he thought he had. And so he touches Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, on the shoulder, and he says, go. Go into the forest, and when you've found peace, come back and teach me. I love this moment. He could have disowned him. He could have said, you are dead to me. If you walk through that door, you are dead to me. As parents have done for all sorts of reasons since time immemorial. But I think some part of him recognizes that Siddhartha has reached enough peace that he's willing to die if that's what it takes. And the king realizes he's not at peace. He wants what his son has in that moment. Instead of the life he wanted for his son. But you know, when, when he's met with Siddhartha's fire, you know, that unshakable determination, he lets go. 
he lets go and he says, okay. Okay, you've seen something I haven't. So please come back and share that. I've told the story of recognizing, you know, the moment when I recognized that Daito Roshi was my teacher, that I wanted him to be my teacher, because he was so at ease with himself, and I was not. And I thought, I want that. I want what he has. And so Siddhartha goes. He leaves everything he knows behind. As I said, without any assurance that he'll find what he's seeking. Without knowing that what he was going to do would change the course of history. And then maybe he knew in some way Maybe he didn't need to know. I mean, not, not with the kind of knowledge that measures, that weighs, you know, that assesses. Is what I'm about to do, does that make sense? Is it worth it? Does it give me a return on my investment? Because even practice, we sometimes approach in this way. I mean, yes, I'll do it, but how long is it going to take? How long before I can, you know, check off the next thing on the schedule? We don't talk about it that way, but we do. We do. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. You know, because there are some things that don't lend themselves to this type of measurement. Things like practice, things like our life, things like love. And so we have to trust. We have to trust and we have to step into that trust and give our lives over to it. Because the part that measures and compares and analyzes and anticipates, I mean, it's helpful if you have to get health insurance. It's helpful if you're getting a mortgage. But it's limited. You don't awaken with a spreadsheet. You don't realize who you are by tallying up your achievements. At some point, you have to let go into the unknown. I've been quoting Deepa Ma, and I've, and I've told this anecdote before. She said to Joseph Goldstein, you should, how's your practice going? You should sit for two days. And he realized she meant sit for a period that lasts two days, not do a weekend retreat. And he's like, but that's impossible. And she just said, don't be lazy. And whether it was two days or four hours or, you know, whatever it is, really what she was saying is don't limit yourself. 
as I said last week or a few days ago, what she was saying is you can do anything you want to do. It's only your thoughts that stop you. And so as I wrote, maybe that is what the Buddha was thinking. He's standing there until the break of dawn, and he wonders, you know, what would I do? What could I accomplish if I didn't let myself be stopped? Not by my thoughts, by my beliefs, by others' beliefs, by the stories they tell about me, by the stories I tell about me. I've worked with a couple of you recently where I've really been stressing the power of koans to help us strip away the stories. You know, how, how quickly we move in to fill in information that we think we don't have. A partner, a friend, a, a child says something and we hear only part way or they're not saying everything they need to say because they're not able or because they don't know yet and we immediately fill in we assume we infer we interpret and immediately communication starts to break down koans are very powerful in that they really train you to take what's in front of you at face value to begin with that, at least. You have all the information that you need. That's what you work with, that's how you proceed. And when it's a person standing in front of you, then you ask. If you feel you don't have all the information, you ask, do you mean, I'm hearing, do you mean to say, But when we do let ourselves be that bare, you know, that simple, and when we let ourselves be that, that simple in our practice, that straightforward, then we realize how much we're actually capable of achieving. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisedoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.